Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me hailing from the other Emerald City is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello! What an awesome, awesome connection to make for this episode. (laughs) September is officially upon us, but we haven't forgotten about August just yet, uh, especially here in the South where it's blazing hot and uh, doesn't seem to be quitting anytime soon. But specifically, we're talking about the donor pick selected by our awesome patrons, and we're going to be talking about The Wizard of Oz, which is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact. And we are here to show it the love that it deserves. That said, spoilers abound from here on out. So let's hop on the yellow brick road and see where it takes us, Aaron. All right. One word takeaways, as we always like to start the show. Kick us off, my friend. Well, my one word takeaway hovered between a couple of different words. Um, and I ultimately settled on imagination. I was also thinking a lot about the word dreams, but to me, Dorothy's version of the world that she enters, the world of Oz, it feels very intentional, almost as if it was a subconscious creative effort at work that is taking the elements of her life and people from it, and it's transposing them into this adventure that is filling her desire and her need to go somewhere and get away from the struggles of everyday life. And I just get the feeling that it feels like something more... To me, it's almost like a dream that you're participating in, that you have control over. I have this ability in my dreams, or I used to, haven't had it in a long time, where I could seemingly affect it. I would wake up, and I would be conscious of the fact, and I made decisions and choices in that dream, I felt like I was aware of what I was doing. So I guess you could just say it feels like a daydream to me. And it reminds me um, of what I think I would want if I was going to go visit another world and create it for myself, minus maybe a wicked wish of the West. Uh, It's still one of my favorite movies because it also reminds me of something that we all deal with in our lives at some point, which is that dreaming of somewhere that isn't here. And what do we all do? We all go into our imagination at that point. And I think this does that in an imaginative way uh, for us to view. And I, so it's absolutely stood the test of time for me. Uh, and it, it's a really, really cool vision on screen. Yeah, I got a chance to watch this in the highest definition that I could. I don't have a 4K television, but seeing the vividness of it on the screen, having not seen it in a long time, really surprised me at how really beautiful it was to watch. But this was the first time that I'd seen it with a, with a child that wasn't me. <laughs> I got to see it with my son. I actually said, hey, I would like you to watch this with me. He's six years old. He's a little pre- uh, precarious. And he, he, he kind of balked at it initially because he didn't like the fact that it was black and white, or I guess sepia would be the technical word to call it. But as the movie went on, he started to enjoy it a little bit more. But what I found was that he was asking a lot of questions about, well, if the scarecrow doesn't have a brain, then how can he be alive? And Daddy, did I come from Munchkin Land? (laughs) No, he didn't go that far. 
he was trying to figure out how many witches there were. And I said, well, just like there are directionals, north, south, east, and west, there are, I would assume that there are four witches, even though I know we have not just cardinal directions, but also others. So there could be a multitude. Who's in the south? I don't know. Probably someone with a Razorback shirt on or something. But oh, that'd be cool. That'd be a Razorback witch. <laughs> Questioning whether they're a good witch or a bad witch. You would assume that North and South would be good because the Glenda the Good Witch of the North. Anyway, mathematically speaking, it makes sense. But he was asking a lot of questions. And watching this with him and watching how the narrative plays out, education was really the word that summed up my experience this time around. There was a lot of things that, I mean, you know, I was sarcastically asking random questions myself, like, oh my gosh, how is this even possible? And your response was always, it's a dream. It's a dream. It's a dream, <laughs> which I knew, but it really does raise a lot of questions about what's actually happening here and what are they trying to do here? Hearing my son respond to it the way he did, I never asked those kinds of questions. I never said, hey, you know what? If the... Scarecrow has doesn't have a brain. Does that mean that nobody has a brain in these four or at least three? Does the Tin Man not have a brain either? And he's just focusing on getting a heart. These are questions that I still have. And I'm sure that there are lots of philosophical conversations that center around some of those. Maybe there are. Maybe I'm just delusional about those. But I really found this experience to be very educational, not only from conversating with my son, but also being able to look up more information about the movie, its history, why the Scarecrow was carrying a gun, uh, you know, things like that that really piqued my interest. Because a movie like this that is 80 years old has a lot of information about it. And watching it and following up with some articles here and there, it was very educational for me to experience it as an adult, because I don't know that I had seen it since I was maybe in college or maybe even in high school. So being able to to see it as an adult and being at this stage in my life uh, with my son next to me was very educational on a number of levels. Scarecrow's got a gun. <laughs> Scarecrow's got a gun. That's all I can that, think of. That would have been the number one single thing. Anytime I... See it, and I think about it now. I immediately start singing. Jandy's got a gun in my. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to side note. I'm going to take that clip and I'm going to overlay the Aerosmith song with it, and maybe make a little music video out of it. That'd be great. With little cuts here and there of him kind of, you know, looking around all weird like. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is one of these movies that has stood the test of time. It it blows my mind that it's still something amazing even after close to a hundred years old. I mean, we're 20 years away. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably overreaching with that, but 80 years. I mean, that's still a monumental feat. It was one of the first movies that actually introduced color. And I think one of the things I read was that the, the actual coloring was, was painted on, like it wasn't obviously digitized necessarily, but it was one of those things where there was a lot that went into those technical aspects and it really paved the way for a lot of the blockbusters we love today. There's a lot of bigness about it, big adventure. From your standpoint, these technical things that come along with it, the color choices, the set design, the the world building, um, how does a movie like this that's 80 years old uh, stand up against 
everything that's come after it? Like, how does it pioneer the way for you? Well, for one thing, I've been wondering, is The Wizard of Oz the first road trip movie? Because it's quite possible. That is a genre that I never would have attributed to this until my most recent watch. But I was like, gosh, you know what? That's exactly what's happening right here. Like literally a road movie. They are on a road. Of course, I guess most road trip movies involve driving on a road, too. And these people are just walking. But still, it's a road trip movie. It's a cast of characters in a, you know, going on a trip from one place to another and having a series of adventures along the way and usually learning something. And coming back to the other side changed. So it's a road trip movie. But it really, I think, paved the way for blockbusters like Star Wars, like Lord of the Rings. I don't know that those kind of movies would have existed in the way that they do now, necessarily, without something like The Wizard of Oz. Like It was the first to really bring out this fantasy world. Now, I know that there had been fantasy before this in the horror genre somewhat, and George Milius had done some work in sci-fi, but nothing to the extent of what we see in The Wizard of Oz, the changing of color. I mean, it is still shocking today, Patrick. I don't know that we see it hardly ever where films do this. I I'm, I have struggled to think of examples, honestly, of movies that start off black and white and flip into a different color palette. Or even, I guess, that shift different color palettes distinctly, not necessarily from bright colors to the sepia. But it is very rare. And so it did that, which I can only imagine in 1939, right, would have been massively mind-blowing to go to the theater and watch when Dorothy wakes up in Munchkinland and all of a sudden it's bright color. You know, like, that would have been just wild at that time. I can't even fathom... To me, it would have been like watching Avatar in 3D for the first time and realizing like, oh my gosh, this medium of entertainment that I've been watching, this visual entertainment that up until now for me has always generally just been black and white and devoid of, you know, really distinct popping crisp color. And all of a sudden, bam, here it is in your face. That would have been pretty staggering, I think. Uh, and, you know, it has a strange land. It has talking animals. It's got wild things like coma-inducing flowers. And it's also got relatable characters who are grounded and who are looking for each other, to each other for strength and learning from one another. And like I said, they're evolving and they're changing or growing in some way along this journey that they're going on. I mean, it is a road trip movie. It is like the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Going down the yellow brick road is kind of in a little bit of a way like going to Mordor. I think it sets the tone historically for those types of genres and those types of movies in what we would call an abbreviated way. I think that's what pioneers do. They they set the stage. They create a template for a successful way to enact a narrative like that. What I think Wizard of Oz does most effectively is the intentionality of color, specifically. Not just moving from sepia to a full-blown color thing to show off, hey, look, this is one of the first big movies in color, because Gone with the Wind was the same way. It was in full color, too. And I don't remember when it came out, but I think it was in that same time period. So seeing movies in color was, was a new thing, but seeing The Wizard of Oz use a distinction from sepia to color 
and back to sepia with that kind of intent, I think created a very analogous response from the audience. It did for me at least, because you look at the Wizard of Oz and I see it more as a metaphor now, but I think it's a metaphor for future movies as a template. Like it sets that tone. It sets that way of like, here's how it can go. I was talking to a coworker of mine today about how the Wizard of Oz as a movie has in its pioneering shown how practical effects can really be effective. How in today's market, we have a huge amount of reliance on digital effects, CG, green screen, blue screen. And there's also this interesting shift of where not to take away from the acting ability of the actors back in those time periods, but they're interacting with each other. You have Dorothy interacting with real people, real actors who are portraying scarecrows and lions and witches and flying monkeys and whatnot, surrounded by other technical marvels like horses of different colors and big giant set pieces. That also horse combined is one of my favorite things in the movie, Patrick. I don't know why I didn't remember the horse, but when I saw it this time around, I was like, oh my gosh, a purple horse. That thing is awesome. And then it wasn't purple, it was red. And then it was yellow, which is the best color, like a bright yellow horse. That's awesome. <laughs> and is this where the phrase came from? Or were they making a play off of the phrase? I would think it's the latter. Just like the wizard, I didn't catch this until this this go around, when they melted the, the witch and the wizard says, so you, so you liquidated her. I think that's, that's fantastic. Funny. So there's a lot here when it comes to what we would consider, hey, that's kind of current. That feels like a modern piece of writing. The the horse of a different color playing off of seemingly this old cliche phrase, but being literal. I think that that speaks to this fantasy world that, that you spoke of in your one word takeaway, where you have a lot of things that we consider metaphorical that become very literal. The, the motives of each of these main characters are somewhat allegorical, but they're taken as, as literal. We're following an actual scarecrow. We're not following a representation of someone in the vein of a scarecrow. We're actually following a scarecrow. We're following a girl. We're, you know, it's all being led by, by a dog. And I think I mentioned this offline that the Wizard of Oz would not have happened. The events would not have taken place had Dorothy gotten total obedience trained. And so I'm grateful that we have a dog that doesn't know how to sit or stay or not bite people because then we wouldn't have gotten this great movie. So kudos Dorothy for not taking care of your dog. Although we never would have had to gone through all this stress and madness if she just had a cat because cats would have just been kind and stayed with Dorothy and loved on her and cuddled and slept and eaten and never bothered anybody else. Yeah, this is true. This is true. But it wouldn't have been as fun. Anyway. <laughs> but I do think The Wizard of Oz definitely pioneered a lot of stuff. And I think that there are things that we can take from The Wizard of Oz even today, which is taking a simple story and filling it in with interesting plot points, interesting moments, because that's what it is. It's a very simple story and it's very replicatable. 
just infusing it with a, a different kind of piece and part or character or plot point. I, I actually asked myself, what would this look like if it was remade? I mean, I know that The Wiz was done back in the 80s with Michael Jackson and and a cast of people of color. I'd be curious to watch that again, but I'd be curious to see what would a different take on this story be? I mean, it's based off of a, off of a book, but I would love to see a different interpretation of this story, maybe a little bit darker, maybe a little bit more dramatic, less... You know, essentially a reimagining, if you will. Pretty sure Return to Oz is darker. And they also did make a remake of sorts not even 10 years ago with uh, James Franco in it. Oh, that's right. That centered around the, the wizard yeah. himself, which I didn't really care for. So maybe, okay. Well, in any case, I'd kind of like to see the original 1939 be the source material for, for something modernized and see kind of... It is. It. <laughs> it's called Wicked, and it's incredible. It's it's not. Again, that's not the story, and you know that. And even that musical is not even. It's loosely based on the book's source material that it comes from. Anyway, that's a different <laughs> conversation. That's a horse of a different color. And we won't oh. talk about that. <laughs> Something that is modernized, or that that we pick up on in this, is that representation of age and gender roles which were very surprising for the late 1930s. Aaron, did you see ways that adults and females are portrayed that make The Wizard of Oz special? Well, yeah. Basically, everything's reverse and backwards from what you would expect it to be during this time period. And it's actually a pretty rah-rah girl power movie when it comes down to it. For one thing, though, if we talk about gender... No, sorry. I want to talk about age first. The adults in this film are largely inept, it feels like. Auntie M and Uncle Henry can't stop what's happening, what Miss Gulch is wanting to do, and she's coming to take Toto away. And they aren't able to protect Dorothy. There's a tornado. It just feels like they're not able to provide her with the life that she supposedly wants. All the way through, we get to the wizard, who clearly who portrays himself to be this incredibly powerful person when, in fact, he has none. And it just feels to me like the opposite, where in this day and age, we would normally be seeing adults setting the example for children, right? But here we are in a kid's movie or a family-friendly movie that a child is leading the way. And... Even the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion, if you want to consider them quote-unquote adults by nature because that's who they are in their real world, counterparts are, you know, they're missing things in ways that would help them be more helpful. And so it's just an interesting twist on the way that they portray age. Usually older folks in movies are portrayed as wiser and smarter and leading the way and, and providing this knowledge to the other characters, but that doesn't happen here. More importantly, though, and in your face, is the representation of gender. It totally feels like it's light years ahead of its time, honestly. You know, you go back to the wizard, he's completely useless as this powerful man, and everybody in the, in the, in the book, everybody in the movie that has power is woman. 
Dorothy has these magical shoes, the Wicked Witch, both of them, until one of them is killed, are powerful with their magics. Glenda, the same thing. These are the characters that can do supernatural things. And so that's very different from what even today we would see, Patrick, in the blockbuster film world. It's just not the case for the most part. We still get excited and try to champion movies that have female leads. And it, to an extent, can feel forced at times because we're so not used to it that that shock of seeing something different is jarring. And here in this time period, I can imagine it was that much so or more. Uh, you know, even the male leads, like the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion, they're all very common. They're all struggling with something. They all have something to solve, right? A problem to solve. They're missing something about their person. They're not whole, even, in a way. And so I, I just thought it was really intriguing to watch that play out this time around in the current era. I do too, but I think that one of those aspects actually influences another. If we look at the world of age and we see the adults in this, yes, there's definitely an ineptness to them, but there's also a sense of responsibility, seasonedness, a sense of control, predictability, especially early on in the movie. I'd forgotten the extents the extendedness, whatever you want to call it, of the sepia moments. I thought we had maybe five minutes and then we were in Oz. I didn't realize that you know, 20 minutes later, that's when the tornado hits. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I wrote this down. It's a 115-minute movie, and it's not until the 59-minute mark that we get to Oz. So it is like almost 20 full minutes before we get to Oz, which is, I feel like, or I'm sorry, it's, it's, it happens fast is what I'm saying. Like once they're in Oz, the Oz portion goes very fast. Yeah. Because once they're, once they're at Oz, which takes a while to get to, like you mentioned, it only is it, all the way up to the 60 minute mark before they actually get there for the first time. And then they shift and they go back. Right. So looking at, how much time we spend in the real world, there's a sense of establishing the fact that Dorothy's family are busy taking care of the farm. They are busy doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, these hands, these, I guess they're brothers, cousins, whatever they are, the, the trinity of the scarecrow, tin man, and cowardly lion in real form are just as hard working as her aunt and uncle. And we have this character in Dorothy who you could make the argument this. I, I don't agree with this, but you can make the argument that she's really, she's, she's got that innocence, but she's got that kind of immaturity because she doesn't really have a care in the world outside of her dog. And as a dog owner, I think that's very valuable, but from a narrative standpoint, we have, we have a girl who, She's not looking for anything. I mean, she wants to leave the farm. She wants to go somewhere. She wants to be over the rainbow and experience life, which I think is very common today where you have this coming of age story of someone 
especially a female who wants to leave the confines of this predictable world. And I think that as you spoke earlier, this representation that she has in this dream of Oz is a personification of that where she feels like, Hey, I'm essentially controlling everything, even though she doesn't feel like she is. I mean, we find out that she could have left Oz at any given point because she had the magic. She had the ruby slippers. She just had to say the words. But I think that this whole journey for her was a journey of going from innocence to understanding. And I think these characters that she came into contact with, not only the the trinity of characters that she went to Oz with, but also the wizard himself, the wicked witch, all of those things were personifications of the fact that she was growing up and she was trying to understand what life was like beyond the confines of of the world. So maybe to her, she saw adults as incomplete, as not having all the information, not having all the wisdom that she needed. So it wasn't surprising, but I agree that for that time period, it definitely pushed the envelope because we don't see that. We don't see a female lead who essentially is kind of taking over the world in which she lives in especially a story that centers around someone who is portraying that innocence. But I do think that her age and the way in which she's interpreting this dream world, it affects those types of personalities. It doesn't surprise me that the wizard is an oaf that is really kind of an idiot or that these three individuals have this incompleteness. Cause I think it's kind of an extension of her. She's trying to find answers. And I think that she's personifying these characters in a way to kind of sort that out. Yeah, I think she is too. I think she's she's in t- making it intention making them up intentionally yes. in certain ways yeah. to give her the opportunity to work through it. <laughs> right. Like I said, I think it's her subconscious like creating this story, this these people, these, you know, it, it, the, the wizard made me pretty angry this time around actually just seeing how shady he is and watching him give knickknacks and trinkets to the trio and, and pretend that they're meaningful. I mean, I, there's a sweetness to that moment, but there's also just some really upsetting stuff. Like when she first gets to Oz, the only reason they let her in the door, Patrick, is because she has the ruby slippers. They have, she's wearing this object of power, but when she tells them why she's there and what her need is, they don't let her in. It's this object. So it's like, they're letting her in because of her status, essentially, like is what gets her into Oz. It's, it's gross. <laughs> and then he does nothing but, you know, BS them throughout. And I just, I, oh, I don't know. I, I had a hard time connecting with him because I thought, you know, oh, it's, it's kind of sweet, you know, and then we have that great moment with the Tin Man and he says, a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. I don't even know if I agree with that, frankly. I don't know if that's good advice or not, to be honest. Um, so I, just, I had some issues with the wizard this time. Well, to that, to that point, uh, this was, this was a, a candidate for my connecting point. I, I saw those as opportunities for him to help those three realize that what they had was there all along. And while I think that it could be interpreted, and I did interpret it, at least in part this way, that Apparently, you need a trinket to validate what you actually have on the inside. You need a medal to show that you have courage. Each time he said, 
before he gave him the trinket. He said, you know, these men have this and this, but what they have and you don't is this. And so I'm now going to give you this. And the trink, the trinket almost becomes a, a thing of power, just like the ruby slippers. And it's easy to potentially miss the fact that there is a weird spot of wisdom in what he's saying. You had it the whole time. If you need something to help push you to believe that, here it is. Here's a diploma. Here's a medal. Here's a heart of a clock. I don't know what that is. But it at the same time can be very frustrating because what happens, again, I'm projecting, what happens when the lion is running through the woods and he loses the medal? Right. Is he now right. no longer courageous? What happens when Scarecrow burns up his diploma or he gets burned? Is he no longer smart? There's that interpretation that is very valid. You cannot rely on things to validate who you are and what's really inside you. Exactly. And that's that's what I picked up on this time. And I don't think I've ever really thought about it that way before. But I was like, man, he's lying to them. I, I get that. It's To me, it felt a lot like what we do sometimes as parents. Like, is it good to lie to your kids because you are protecting them? Because you're trying to teach them a lesson and you know it's going to do it, but you're doing that thing by means of deception. And there's something inherently just that doesn't sit well with me about that. And then that, that comment, that quote, a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. Listen to the words. Like, I think we tend to hear it and just be like, oh, whatever he's saying is so sweet it's about love. But when he, what he's saying is you're not judged by what you do. You're judged by what people think of you. And I think he's trying to say that, you know, your long-term value or what people think of you will reveal your character in a way, i.e. how much people love you when you're gone. But I don't know that I like saying a heart is not judged by how much you love. To me, it is judged by what you do and how much you love you put out into the world, regardless of what others return to you. Mm -hmm. The funny thing about what you're saying is that when I heard that quote, I immediately thought of George Bailey. A man is Great a rich comparison. man who has friends. I saw that interpretation. The fact that not that my value comes from someone else's opinion of me, but that relationships that I have and the way in which people re respond to me, the love that people have for me is an extension of the love that's in my heart. It's a very messy, is messy it down, quote. down, 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 down in your heart? <laughs> that's joy, not love. You need oh, to. Dad gummit. You need to, you need to, if you're going to make Christian puns. Listen, I have not sure. been to vacation Bible school in a minute. Okay. <laughs> we learned that in youth group, man. I don't think you were there for that one. Um, but I think probably had a date. You make a good here. point. There's a lot of deception that's happening here and a lot of gullibility. And I think even on Dorothy's part, I think the only two creatures, characters in this entire movie within the world of Oz that aren't sucked in by this are Toto and 
the witch of the West. Like, I think if you're going to talk about honesty and straight up, like, candidness, you know, of course, we don't know what Toto's thinking. Toto's just doing what Toto's going to do. But I think the Wicked Witch of the West is probably the most authentic of any of these characters because she says exactly what she wants to do. She tries to go about doing it and she'll stop at nothing to make sure that it gets done. And for my money, I got to respect the Wicked Witch of the West because she is not pulling any punches when it comes to what it is that she's trying to get. And she's not lying to anyone when she's like, I'm going to burn people. I'm going to take those ruby slippers. I'm not trying to deceive anyone. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's really hard for me now to separate because I have such an absolute love for Wicked and the first few stories uh, of that book series and having this different view of Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, and what she's been through. I have a lot more empathy for her, which is what makes Wicked so brilliant. Um, but yeah, she is absolutely honest about what she wants. You know, one of the things I found pretty funny interesting, I guess, not funny, uh, before we keep going is that there's a noise outside. Because there's always a noise outside. Always a noise outside. Is that Dorothy kills... Well, I take that back. There are two witches are killed. The Wicked Witch of the East and the Wicked Witch of the West. And both of them are killed by accidents. No one is outright murdered. Second degree, man. That's Second right. Second degree murder. The house... <laughs> falls on the Wicked Witch of the East. Un Dorothy has no control over that. It's a tornado taking it where it wants to go. She's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Scarecrow, Dorothy, is trying to save his life. He has been put on fire, and she simply throws the water at him to put the fire out, having no idea what might happen if that water goes past the fire and lands on the witch, and she dies from it. Completely... Not premeditated, not intentional. I per I believe that in a court of law, Dorothy would be completely absolved of any wrongdoing because she had no knowledge that that could even cause such an effect on the Wicked Witch of the West life. So, I mean, that's what Judge Aaron says about that scene. And I thought it was pretty interesting to me that she kills two witches and doesn't try to kill either one of them. A double homicide. I like it. And sisters. I mean, there's a, there's a lot here. I, I think I would watch that crime drama. Of putting that, the trial doom, doom. of Dottie. CSI. You know. CS. Wow. You know, put your, put your glasses on, you know. <laughs> the witch is really interesting because I think there, um, one of the things that's interesting about the witch that I don't think a lot of people know is that the Wizard of Oz is responsible for creating the witch, at least visually as we know it today. Very stereotypical, very much a trope. And this is one of those things that you could say doesn't hold up or that feels very hokey in the way that she and her lackeys act. It's pretty cheesy in, in the entire movie. But I wanted to ask you, despite that, are they still effective as an antagonist or an opponent for Dorothy? Well, first of all, to your comment about the Wicked Witch of the West or the Wicked Witches in this movie setting a standard. The Wicked Family. The Wicked Family of Witches. They absolutely created the idea that witches are green. So prior to this, witches were not viewed as green goblin-like beings. And 
what happens every Halloween now? What do you think of when you think of a witch? You see witches as green a large majority of the time when they're depicted in popular culture, not necessarily in like artsy indie movies and such. But for the longest time, for decades and decades, this movie became synonymous with that green, that green witch was what got put out into culture. And this movie also played on the very common belief that witches had to be ugly. Glenda even straight up says it to make sure that there is no question. She says, I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. <laughs> old and ugly. Which is interesting because she's the same age as Alfaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. They went to school together, so she's not old. She's not older than Glinda. So I think it's interesting that Glinda is pointing out this physical difference, right? And that what she's really saying, of course, is evil people have ugly hearts, is where her intent lies. But we... As culture, pick up on that, and witches are commonly thought of as green and ugly old hags. And hey, here's where we got that. I also thought that the, I thought it held up pretty well, personally. It is a little bit hokey. The soldiers in particular, there's just not, they're very cookie cutter. They don't have much emotion to them. They just kind of move as one and do what they're told to do. You know, some of that is due to the set sets and the lack of CGI. And just, there are these old dudes or people, I guess, on a movie stage somewhere in a back lot, you know, throwing props at each other. <laughs> and it looks like that. Looks like yeah. you a fight that you would have in your backyard. But I thought that it was plenty menacing. I mean, the witch literally threatens all of them. She says she'll see all three go before her. She tells Dorothy, I'm going to kill every single one of your friends and your little dog before I kill you. That's freaking terrifying. Like, I mean, that's not like in a kid's movie, you know, like that. she's like threatening all of her friend's life with murder. And I thought that was really scary, honestly, within the setting of the movie. So hit or miss, I still think the flying monkeys hold up just because they're so unique and such a cool, like weird thing for the Wicked Witch to have. It's one of those pieces of the lore of this movie that I really would have loved to see. I like to see it expanded on because it makes you want to know, like, why are there flying monkeys? Where do they come from? Where do they live? What what else is out there in the world that could be like a flying monkey? And I think it's cool seeing the Wicked Witch of the West power too, being able to create the poppy field that puts Tin Man to sleep, ultimately, I think it's Tin Man, um, from afar right? Through the use of actual magic. So I, I like it, man. I think it holds up just fine. I would say it holds up fine relative to the protagonist. I think that the Wicked Witch of the West, along with the other characters, is on par in quality compared to Dorothy. I don't think that as the movie has aged, none of these characters have gone by the wayside. I think they've been redefined for me beyond just fun characters to more archetypes, more symbolic, more allegorical. And that works and you don't need to have an overly complex villain. She's not necessarily the mustache twirling villain that works in some places and doesn't work in others. She's not Thanos and she's not meant to be. She's meant to be exactly who I think she portrays herself as as a foil for Dorothy. And you're right. She does make a lot of serious threats that in hindsight are a big deal. I think the way in which she does it 
comes across as a little less than stellar in terms of its impact. I would probably attribute it to when you look at a movie like Superman 2 and the way in which Superman gets rid of Zod. It's very, it can, it can be portrayed as very comical. It's not very dramatic. And you compare that to Man of Steel and the way that goes down. And those two pieces were compared quite a bit to each other because there's a lot of criticism about how Zack Snyder portrayed Superman and the way in which he and, and Zod fought and the, the end result of that. And I think in the same way, the Wizard of Oz and particularly the, the witch herself, the role she plays for Dorothy as that foil makes perfect sense. If you were to evolve this into a modern day setting, you're going to elevate Dorothy, but you've got to elevate the Wicked Witch as well. Give her the same motives. Give her a similar backstory as Wicked does so effectively. But you're going to have to deepen that kind of character. And you're going to have to probably answer some of those questions of the, the mythology. Because I think that adds to the, the mystery that's there. But it does give you questions to ask. And it's questions that, that I want answered. And I think that would deepen who she is as a character. But it would only be relation, relationally speaking to how Dorothy is. So short answer is I think she works fine for this too. I, I think that for this movie, it's perfect. If you were to modernize it or update it or give it a prequel as Wicked apparently does, you're going to make those kinds of steps for a modern audience. So I think in this case, it's it works just fine. I agree. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So my rambling hopefully you know, got to a good point with our listeners too. <laughs> There's a famous line that I think is probably the most famous. There's no place like home. It's the the chant, the calling, the whatever that gets her eventually back to where she wants to be, back to Kansas. And it's definitely one of the central messages of the movie. As as a metaphor or as a literal thing, what does the film say to you about escaping versus embracing your roots? Well, she's essentially saying home is where the heart is, in my opinion. That's what I get out of that. Now, it's probably not a one-for-one translation. Um, you could say Dorothy's heart, to some extent, lies in Oz with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion. Of course, they're also actually back in reality as well. But that's the similar phrase that I compare to there's no place like home is home is where the heart is. But in other words, I think it's saying your roots are important and where you come from and where you currently put down your roots matters. And I think we see in Dorothy, as I mentioned in my opening, that this character, like who is so much like many of us at some point in our lives where we just aren't loving everything about our life at the moment and we want to be somewhere else. We want to try something new. And Auntie M kind of admonishes Dorothy to an extent and I think stirs that up even more. She says, find yourself a place where you won't get in any trouble. So Dorothy starts thinking about what a place like that might look like to her. And does that place even exist? I mean, that's how we get to the great song somewhere over the rainbow is because she's seeking an answer to that question. 
or not question, but to that challenge, essentially. And so she goes on this adventure and she has to choose between the sepia gray world of Kansas, where there's nothing to do but farm and play with your dog, apparently. Maybe ride your bike. I don't know. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of good stuff to get, build a storm shelter so that the next tornado doesn't ruin your house. I, I don't know. There's not a lot to going on. Or you go to Oz, full of color and munchkins and all these different lands and candy. <laughs> it's hard not to compare it to Willy Wonka when she first arrives, to be honest. There's such a great comparison there. But there's wizards and witches and fantasy aspects to it and horses that change color and you get to go on an adventure on a road trip with these three cool, unique characters that have neat personalities and you get to know people. She doesn't really have that back in Kansas. So of course there's going to be an appeal to that. And to me, that's escapism. That's what she's trying to do. She's trying to find something that will take her away from where she's at. And I think one of the appeals of this is that the movie allows us to kind of see both sides of the story we can understand why Dorothy would want to be escaping her current situation, and we can relate to that. And then we can also relate to, once Dorothy runs into trouble, wanting her to embrace her roots and the people that truly exist and love her, and that she can be a part of their lives and maybe go back with a renewed enthusiasm to strengthen those relationships and create the world that, you know, make the world the place you want it to be, you know, that mantra that people always are saying. So I love that the film gives us both of those things in it and ultimately doesn't, I don't think, necessarily pick a side. I guess the cynic in me this time around looked at that line and added a comma and a phrase after it. I heard there's no place like home, comma, for better or for worse. I look at Dorothy's journey not just as a form of escapism, because escapism essentially implies that you're turning your brain off and just enjoying the ride. I think she, if she's creating this world, she's doing it with purpose because she feels like she has no purpose where she is. If all of her life up to now has been just toting around Kansas with her dog and potentially getting in trouble, because of her dog, I think there's a part of her, again, I'm projecting so bad on this from a 2019 perspective, I think there's a part of her that likes the fact that she gets in trouble. I think there's a part of her that likes the fact that she has to stand up to this woman and say, no, you're not going to take my dog. And even though Judy Garland portrays herself, this character, as like scared and fearful, I think there's a small part of her that says, I need this. I need to feel like I'm responsible for someone. I need to feel like I'm needing to take care of someone. And that's what I think when she starts meeting these three individuals, she finds purpose in being able to lead them or and be led by them at the same time. They are incomplete. And she says, well, you know what? She doesn't necessarily see that she can fix them, but you know what? She's on the road and she's the... She's the path person, even though at some point there's a fork in the road and apparently the scarecrow knows where to go from there, even though he doesn't have a brain. I don't know. What has a brain? Exactly. And so, you know, spoiler alert, he really does have a brain, people. 
But she finds these three individuals that I feel like she wants to fix them. She wants to help solve their problems. Even if she's not the one that actually solves it, she wants to lead them down that path and be a part of their fixing journey. I don't know how that looks in the real world, but I feel like you're right. When challenged with that, I think it scares her. I think she's in this dream world and she's like, oh my gosh, this is something I really don't think I can handle. So ultimately, she sees home as a safe place, a place where she doesn't have to be challenged. Yes, you could say, is she going to be a better person because of this? You'd think so. Because she's saying, you were there and you were there and you and I don't ever want to leave. And you could make the argument that she learned a lesson, that really these people do care about her and that she is someone who's valuable. But at the same time, I'm going, no, this is a girl who's going to be stuck there for life. What is she going to be? Is she just going to continue to live her life and just appreciate the fact that she's got people that care for her? Is she going to go to college? Is she going to be a senator? What? I don't know. Again, it's fun to speculate, but I don't know. I just, I didn't get the optimistic ending that I did when I was younger. And maybe that's the cynic portion of, of me that's kind of projecting onto that. But I definitely thought she went back to safe haven, which can be considered good, but it's different than going back to the Shire. I had this monstrous adventure because she is changed, but she's not changed the way that Frodo is. Like she hasn't literally gone to hell and back. And now her life is going to be different because she's going to lead and she's going to do something amazing. And I know that that's not her purpose, but I feel like she kind of cheated it by saying, okay, I don't want that life. I really want the safe life here. I'm going to go back to that. We also, it's hard to compare character development in 115 minutes versus essentially absolutely 12 hours of, of story. <laughs> I get it. And yes. the book sizes are very different. What I guess I would agree with you. Honestly, if we want to look at, what would happen to Dorothy, you know, in 25 years? What was that show on MTV or VH1 after the music or whatever? It's like, after Oz, <laughs> checking in behind, on Dorothy. Behind the music. Behind the mu- behind Oz, behind seeing Dorothy Oz. in 40 years from now. You know, <laughs> what happened to her? She laid up with a bottle somewhere. But I think that point was, like, all we know about Dorothy is that she runs into a problem and she is the kind of person who is young and just wants to avoid said problem by going somewhere else because the grass is green on the other side. That's all we needed to know. She learns that that's not necessarily the case. The grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side and that ultimately she has the power to grow the grass where she currently lives. And whatever that means for her, you're right. We don't know. And if you look at her situation, we could be pretty cynical and pessimistic about her opportunities to do that. I think it's just about her changing her mindset, and then we have to be hopeful that whatever the context of her life becomes, she'll carry that with her and make the best of it. I think what I would have liked if I had my druthers in 1939 is, from a filmmaking standpoint, have her go back to Kansas and the color not be there. It'd still be not sepia, but a less sepia, like not full color, but maybe a... A, a little desaturated color. So you have that kind of maturity, like, Hey, life isn't just black and white and it's not full color that here's the reality of it. It's what reminded me of, of Pleasantville, another great use of, of black and white and color and how that works. Um, so that would have been something interesting. But again, this is not a podcast where we're like, what would patch do if he directed, you know, that might be something fun later on, but 
I digress. Uh, before we finish up, I wanted to ask a couple of questions. We have these three characters, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, very iconic. Just like the witch, they are very much staples of Halloween at times. You know, who are you going to go as if you're a character from The Wizard of Oz? And this time around, I picked up on this kind of representation that kind of exists in all of us, or real more specifically, that we all have flaws. We all have something that we feel like is missing, whether it's we don't feel like we're adequate enough in who we are in, in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if that's what the movie was trying to say, but that's kind of what I interpreted that as. And maybe it's where I am in life. And I wondered, maybe as a speculative question, do you connect with any of these characters because of those things? Not necessarily that you don't have a brain or a heart or that you're scared all the time, but do you find common ground with anyone or all of them? And if so, does that change or does that change as you, depending on what season of life you're in? I thought about this and I don't believe that I particularly relate to any of these characters at the moment. I don't feel like I need brains. <laughs> I don't feel like I need courage and I don't feel like I need a heart or any aspect really of any of those three things. I gave it some thought and I tried to figure out like which one I may be lacking some of, but I feel pretty confident in those areas. And so I was thinking about Dorothy and her journey and her desire to be somewhere else. And I mean, I could kind of connect that to certain pieces of my life, I guess, but for the most part, I definitely don't go around feeling that way. Now, I will say I have felt these ways at some point in my life, but I didn't get anything unique out of this because I related to the characters. That wasn't what makes me enjoy this movie. It's weird because I will tell you all day long that they are relatable, but it's not something that pulls me into it, in particular, this viewing at 40 years old. I kind of feel the same way. I think if I took a step back, I like the concept of being incomplete and the idea that the four of these individuals in some way have a completeness to them. They all kind of fit together, not because Dorothy has a brain and somebody else doesn't or the Tin Man doesn't have a heart, but these other people do. But it reminds me of the fact that when you have a group, an ensemble cast, particularly those that are misfits in some way, shape, or form. I feel like all four of these characters are misfits in some way because they don't fit in. They are outsiders to their their own devices. Like the Scarecrow, for instance, is, is interesting because he doesn't scare crows. Like he's terrible at his job. And it's not because he doesn't have a brain. It's never explained. Why can't he scare crows? He's terrible at what he does. The Cowboy Lion puts up a persona, and when he's challenged, he backs down. So he's really not who he says he is. And then you have Tin Man, who is almost helpless. He says, I was chopping down this here tree, and it started to rain, and I rusted. So you're telling me that you couldn't just walk away because you do have two legs. And again, I'm not thinking like these guys are idiots, but I feel like in some way, shape or form, they don't have all the information. They don't have all the knowledge and they need each other to kind of understand, oh, you know what? 
I'm lacking this. And it's not that this other character is going to give me what I'm lacking. It's that they're going to help push me along. They're going to say, hey, I'm going to help fill in some of the gaps in your world by coming alongside you and letting you know that you're valuable, that you're needed. And I think Dorothy thought that way, too, especially in the moment where she's hugging everyone. And she really feels like, you know what? I'm going to miss you guys because you're my family. And I'm thinking, the cynic in me is thinking, you've only been with them for like two days. What are you talking about? But they've been through a lot, Aaron. I mean, they've, they've battled a witch. They have met a fierce but fake wizard. They have gone to bat for each other in in moments where one person needs that from another. And it it makes me think of this really interesting thing at the end of the movie. She's hugging everybody and she says to Scarecrow, essentially, I'll, I think I'll miss you the most. I don't know if that stood out to you or if it was just like, hey, that's a nice romantic line. But I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think there's any significance from her relationship with the Scarecrow? Like, why would she say that to him and not these other two? Well, I hope it's not romantic. <laughs> no, I, when I say romantic, I mean... Not not in the Woo! sense of, of intimate. I'm, I'm saying like I know. I in the know. sense of like it's a very it's a special romance language. I know, <laughs> I know. I <laughs> still had to make the joke. The um, love yeah, that's gross. Um, so I think it probably comes down to the fact that the scarecrow is first, and he has been with her the so therefore he's been with her the longest, and really he's gone through the most. I think he has put himself on the line for her a couple times, whereas the others have not had to do that or chosen to do that. But he's protected her. You know, the Tin Man, I I don't know. He doesn't really (laughs) have much of a role when it comes to protection, which is weird because he's the one with the axe and he's made of metal and you would think that he'd be... And the Crescent Ridge. The Crescent Ridge. Or the Crescent Ridge. What in the world? Yeah. The Scarecrow's got a gun. Um, I would... Go for, you know, but the cowardly line, you know, he gets scared several times, but he doesn't really suffer that much. But the scarecrow is dismembered and unstuffed completely by the flying monkeys. And then when he's put back together, Patrick, he gets set on fire by the wicked witch. And he even gets in a fight with apple trees. So I think that he has gone through the most and stuck with her through thick and thin putting himself on the line and always being right there in front of her, protecting her. And that is something that she absolutely recognizes. And I felt that specialness, closeness of their relationship throughout the film. And so it doesn't surprise me at all when she says it. It feels very natural and like it makes perfect sense. I would agree. And I think he's the one that grows the most of these three. He has the most that, in my opinion, he gains. Because while all three of the things that they get are trinkets, yes, his diploma doesn't make him smart. But there are more moments where you could argue that he has shown that he has brains, particularly in the fight with the trees. Like he says, hey, watch, I'm going to show you how to get some apples. And he does it. The fact that you can come back from getting (laughs) de-stuffed, that's a word. And getting set on fire, I think that shows a lot of resilience. And I think for Dorothy, she sees the sacrifices he makes. She sees the fact that 
he has gone through that much. And I think that for her, he was the most significant of the three in that he, he gained the most because he had, I think he had the most to lose. Exactly. Yeah. So we agree. And it's good to agree. As we move into our connecting points, I, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't have one, but it wasn't because nothing stood out to me and it wasn't because everything is a connecting point. Musicals are difficult to attach connecting points to because of the fact that you can have a really cool moment, but then it's kind of accented by a song. And if the song doesn't really toot your horn, uh, it can, it can ruin that moment. I think for the most part, yeah, I didn't really have one this go around. Well, I'm in the same boat <laughs> and I, I don't think it's because it's a musical and I honestly couldn't really tell you why. I just didn't have that overwhelmingly emotional single moment. And I think that there are probably several I would normally pick out and call a connecting point within the film. But I knew that we were going to talk about it within the flow of the way the conversation was going to go. And it just didn't feel like I could pull that out without kind of hijacking a conversational point. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times when we talk about our connecting points, we can do so in a shorter fashion without a lot of back and forth. And we weren't going to be able to do that with anything that I was considering a connecting point in this movie. And so I just figured no. And so it was really shocking that we both kind of randomly not planning it didn't have a connecting point for this movie. So it's not a negative. I mean, this is in like my top 30 of all time. It's not a negative, but yeah, there we go. Yeah. When I, when I look at it, I think it's because of the fact that I see this more as a metaphorical or an allegory. And therefore when I see symbols and I see representations of things, I get less connected to it emotionally. Still felt emotion in it. Uh, there were times when I felt some really, happy moments and other times when I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and you know, never going to apologize for not having a connecting point, uh, cause connecting points do not make movies great or not. <laughs> so, they're just a nice bonus for a show like this. Well, that wraps up another episode of feel and film. We hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed talking about it coming up next week. We will be covering my neighbor Totoro, apparently a popular film in the Facebook group. So, be sure to tune in for that. And also, starting September 6th and going through Friday, September 13th, we will be holding a contest in the Facebook group in which we'll be giving away a digital copy of Avengers Endgame as well as a pro subscription for Letterboxd. To be eligible for that goodness, uh, we're asking that you submit your rankings for the Infinity Saga, a.k.a. the MCU movies up to now so that we can compile a feeling film listener ranking. Aaron, thank you so much for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. 
Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.